Welcome to Black Warren Reads, a weekly showcase from the authors of current releases from Black Warren Books. All stories read are available for purchase from BlackWarrenBooks.com, Amazon, and wherever ebooks are sold. Thank you for joining in, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Blackhorn Reads. I'm Chris, your guest host for tonight as we continue our journey through Sam Haynes' secrets for the second story in the anthology, The Kick Gloves Are Off, by Chris Schaefer, otherwise known as Mythic Fox. Tonight's cast for the podcast includes Mythic Fox as Makoto slash Eleanor, Sky as Shiko and Lady Catherine, Dave the Dragon as Kaz and Sophie, Kez as Kyoko, and Dave the Dragon also as the Unnamed Troll. So, without further ado, Mythic, take it away. Makoto, be out front in 15 minutes, picking up for work. I stared at the text. It came from a coworker Kazuhiro's phone, but something about it gets the first ending up on the back of my neck. In my brief time working at Tenno's distribution, I've gotten a good instinct for spotting the sorts of stunts you'd expect from working with tricksters, especially those who occasionally feel the need to help to keep each other sharp. But that isn't what sets off my instincts, or my fox brain, as I like to call it. Now, it concerns me that this doesn't feel like the usual shenanigans. I go back to getting ready. The weirdest thing about awakening to my full Kitsune nature is knowing that 95% of the people likely to see me on a given day can't notice the effort I put in. Well, okay, not the weirdest thing, but like, top five. Mortals can't handle seeing me as I actually look, kind of an anthropomorphic fox person. Unlike most of the foxes you see in wildlife photos, my fur is a largely uniform orange-red, like how foxes are often depicted in Edo-era artwork. I get my fur all going the appropriate directions, make sure I didn't lose any rice from breakfast on my cheek rough, and spend the moment's focus it takes to present an equivalent image to the city's mundane population. Human subconscious can fill in something appropriate, but most cases they prefer to decide for ourselves so others see us. Also, for the sake of subtlety and discretion, we usually wear human guys around other yokai. Yokai meaning other supernatural and magical beings. The others usually say mythics, but Japanese already has a perfectly cromulent word. Once dressed, both mundane and mystically, defaulting to the human appearance I grew up with before awakening, I glance at my phone on the way out to check the time. Turns out I've still got three more minutes, only to see the box truck pull up in front of me, with Tenoth's distribution proudly displayed on the side in English and Japanese. Good morning, Kaz, I say in Japanese as I pull myself into the cab. I spent all of my coworkers, with the coworkers assuming I only spoke English. After letting him discover that Japanese is my native tongue and my American English is merely flawless, I drop the pretense to show of good faith to my fellow foxes. So informal already. That should be Watanabe-senpai when you're in uniform. I do a double take. Chico, why are you dressed like Kazuhiro? Work reasons. She says she pulls into traffic. She's gone to the trouble of wearing one of Kazuhiro's uniforms, concealing herself beneath an illusion of his human form over her own. I can see through her just fine, so that means it's not meant to fool me. But the fact she's doing it at all is concerning. Where's Kazuhiro? Is he dressed like you? He's off being my alibi, so yes. Is this normal? I'm going to need you to drive in a minute. She says tersely as she pulls into a bar parking lot. I start to worry if the bar's owners will notice until I see a sign on the door asking patrons to visit them at their new location in Beckettsville, another of the five districts of the Argent City. So why am I driving? Because nothing is normal about today. Shiko says as she opens the little sliding door that leads into the back. She gives me a look that, combined with her tone, sends a chill down my spine and into my tail. Shiko's forgotten more about delivering a remark with dramatic impact than most humans will ever learn, but I suspect that wasn't deliberate. 
Something has her spooked, which to me suggests this is serious Kate's name business. She climbs into the back of the truck, and as I get ready to move over into her spot, I glance back to see, why is there a guy tied up back there? In the back of the truck, hogtied and gagged on the floor, is a man about six and a half feet tall and seemingly as wide. He has pale blue skin and horns, and is dressed in a beat-up t-shirt and jeans with biker boots. This context makes the shapeless pile in the corner recognizable as a heavy trench coat, for which I hope he has a good cleaner. I know little about the city's fey population, but I recognize a troll when I see one. When I first awakened to my true nature, I kept mistaking them for Oni. To be fair, aside from a couple of qualities they share with other fey, like an inability to lie and an allergy to cold iron, the differences are all but cosmetic. Most of what I know about fey in general is they stay out of our business and we stay out of theirs. Let me rephrase, I quickly say, still in Japanese. Why is there a troll tied up back here? And can we skip the runaround answer focusing on the back here instead of the why is he tied up portion of the question? He's tied up because I need to interrogate him. Okay, that's weird. Now that she's back there with him, I hear Kaz's voice, probably with the trolls hearing layered over hers. He attacked one of the smaller companies we run to keep an eye on different parts of the city, and I need to know why. She let my remark slide with that even awe, no fun. If anyone outside the Keatsney has ever seen her this series for this long and lived to tell about it, I'll be surprised. He's with the guard. She adds as if that means something to me. I'm guessing that's some fey thing. Statistically, it seems likely. Fey cops working for the she-nobility. I know enough to know that she-nobility is redundant in this context. Stuck-up elves who run the show with titles and protocols enforce my magical charisma. And again, I ask... The troll growls something through his gag. Shigo gives me a look and takes it out. I can make out just enough to know you're talking about me. The troll says in English, groggy from what appears to be a blow to the head. Okay, should I start driving while you're back there with him? Hold on for now. Shika snaps at me. Also, whatever you say next, sound angry so he thinks we're arguing. She snarls. I'm a little taken aback by that, and I hope my shock looks genuine as I take a moment to mentally switch gears so I can keep up. Kaz never uses my full name when he texts me. I say with the best tone of righteous indignation. He just calls me Mac. Like I said, too familiar. She growls with a hint of finality as the troll on the floor glances between the two of us. And I'll have you know, for the record, that my impression of him is better than his impression of me. I didn't ask. Okay, I think that's enough. Grudgingly, get back here. I might need you to good cop for me. As serious as she's being, good cop is going to be easy. I've got a really bad feeling about all of this. So you gave me the basics. Shiko says to the troll in English now, still using Kaz's voice. But explain it again, slowly. Why did you kick down the door at Dojima Real Estate? I'm criminals. What kind of criminals? Purple criminals. That means nothing to me. Shiko gives me a look and then back down at him. Half fey. She explains in Japanese without looking away. Twin-blooded is the politically correct term. Purple is... vulgar. I noticed that at some point a katana has appeared on her hip. Was that there before and I've just missed it? And why did you think this? She asks him now, back in English. Baron Rosewood said. Shiko rolls her eyes and places her hand on the sword scabbard. And why did Baron Rosewood say this? Kazuhiro, I warn. The troll leans onto his side, looks up at her, and notices the sword for the first time. His eyes narrow. Try it. She nudges her thumb up against the tsuba, the little handguard on the hilt, and pops it loose as if preparing to draw, a gesture recognized by anyone who has ever seen an anime with a katana in it. 
Kazuhiro, don't. I said, still in Japanese, though my tone translates well enough for me. Yeah, Kazuhiro, I'm not worth it. The troll mockingly says, carefully sounding out the name and still getting it wrong. I'm not going to pretend you're actually going to hurt him, I say to Shiko without paying attention to the captive. We're talking about a troll with, I presume, actual authority. I may still be pretty new to this, but I'm not sure we should push our luck. I then turn to the troll. I don't want to hurt you, I say in slightly off-tone English. Not sure he wants to either, but you're getting on last nerves. It's a rough time. I glance up at Shiko at that last comment. I get the distinct vibe there's more going on here than some troll acting outside his jurisdiction. He looks at me and then back at her. Orders in my pocket. Shiko nods towards the coat, and I go check. I don't know where she got, brought this guy down, but this coat's going to need a pro to get clean up after this. I pull his phone out. No, no, paper orders, the guardsman says. I toss the phone to Shiko anyways and pull out a folded message written on some old stationery. I unfold it and a smaller piece of paper falls out. The large note is an actual letter with, he with header made up of flowing lines and little drawings of flowers that I realize after a moment is cursive script. It's so fancy it takes effort to decipher it as from the desk of Baron Rosewood. Beneath that, there's a message written with, what is that, fountain pen? Nice. It's not addressed to anyone in particular, and just informs the reader in some elaborate courtly language that Keats may have been acting outside their boundaries, smuggling tainted criminals around the city. It says to begin investigations at the enclosed address. The wording is so complex and flowery, it takes me a moment to decipher. The smaller piece of paper has the address of the aforementioned Dojima real estate. Set note is on newer plain paper and still a fountain pen, but the handwriting is different. My first guess is that the Baron formally prepared the orders and had a servant or an assistant handle the details. I really get this Shiko, who makes a show of fiddling with the troll's phone like she isn't sure how to work it and could accidentally drop it at any moment. Does the paper have a smell to it? She asks in Japanese. A smell? Was I unclear? I shrug and smell the paper. After filtering out the troll's scent, it definitely has that smell of having sat in a desk, slightly, war slightly warped by age and moisture, a little dusty, but there's more. There's something to it, kind of a sniff. Subtle animal smell, I think? She considers that as she pockets his phone and puts the gag back on him. He begins to struggle and roll over to try and get free, and with a quick kick, she bounces his head off the floor just right to daze him. We're keeping the note. We're dumping him and then getting back to the warehouse. Stay here for a minute. Shiko, what's going on? I ask as she climbs into the front, suddenly swordless, and pulls the truck around the side of, of the empty bar to the back. I brace myself against the wall until the truck stops moving. A moment later, the bay door rolls open, and she comes in and gestures for me to grab him. I pocket the note, help her pick up the troll, and carry him in through the just-picked back door of the bar to leave him in an empty, dusty kitchen. She unlocks the phone with his thumbprint before we leave him in there with the, with the door unlocked. She sends a text to someone before throwing the phone as hard as she can to a nearby dumpster with a loud crack. The lightning rod abdicated. She says, as if that explains everything. What? When? The lightning rod is one of the Rakef, seemingly powerful sorcerers. I still shiver when I remember the last time one ended and remade the world. Yesterday, I sensed it. Today... She produces the note, having somehow snuck it out of my pocket, and takes a sniff. Today, a puka apparently tricks a member of the guard into assaulting a kitsune operation. Swatting, I think, is the mortal term. She sniffs the note again. Perhaps someone merely wants... Perhaps merely someone who wants us to think it's a puka. Regardless, we must assume these events are related. Which means? This was an attack on the kitsune. Someone wants to take the feud hot. Back in the truck. There's work to do. 
It occurs to me as the garage door opens big enough for the box truck to pull inside that this is moving a little fast. So let's take a few things step by step. This is Tenoth's distribution. It's a rice distributor operating out of the Argent City's International District, Grunstadt, and today it's a hotbed of activity. Most, but not all, of the staff are Kate's name, fox-shaped pricksters, most commonly associated with Japan, though by no means confined to the islands. We've got cousins around the world going by the culturally appropriate names of Kumiho, Hulijing, and so forth, and there might even be one or two of those locally. But Kitsune, as a term, dominates here because Kitsune serves Inari, and Inari lives here in the city. Also, full disclosure, we're not big on independence and rogues, so either they pay lip service or keep their heads down. Don't tell the others I said this, but Kitsune, especially older Kitsune, like Shiko, can be control freaks. Maybe it's because our particular trickster style leans more towards long cons, conspiracies, and Ponzi schemes. We prefer bigger targets like corporations and governments rather than a common coyote's time spent getting tours to follow the lady, or whatever it is, heck it is a you know, puka do. Puka are, are, are another variety of fae, uh, shapeshifters who present themselves as lovable rogues. Extremely lovable when they get going, if you catch my drift. Coyotes are their own thing, literal children of the god coyote, prefer quick cons and scams, lacking in elegance and often working by luck and chutzpah. The Arden City is full of gods and supernatural creatures, not that the humans notice. Speaking of which, because I haven't been working here long, I haven't personally met Inari yet, it's my understanding they collectively make up the board of directors because Inari manifests a variety of smaller gods. So we're talking both singular and plural they. And you thought Loki was complicated. I have, however, met Mr. and Mrs. Mitami, the old Japanese couple glaring through the window separating the office from the rest of the warehouse. As the mortal guys of Uga no Mitama and Uka no Mitama, the gods of rice stored in warehouses, they handle the day-to-day. -day. They're almost never pleased with the Kitsane work ethic, which is superb by human standards, thank you very much. Outside interference rippling through the place, clearly putting them on edge. This is one reason why we also employ humans who don't notice the presence of the supernatural by and large. While Shiko and I cut through the busy warehouse, hearing our fellow foxes make calls and check in on other various little operations, the mundane employees can load trucks and get ready to make deliveries without getting distracted. See, it is easy to tell who's whom, because when we're on our own turf, particularly Little Tokyo, Kitsune relax into our natural forms resembling anthropomorphic foxes, like I when I was getting ready earlier. Fur, tails, whole nine yards. Speaking of which, as you get into the office, I have to stop and punch in. Yep, that's my name on the card, Makoto Minaki. Yeah, it, it's Italian, actually. I was adopted at a young age after being orphaned in a tragic accident that I only survived because he keeps his soul fused with mine. Something I'm still kind of adjusting to. I'd probably be more comfortable with it by now, but as it's been explained to me, that soul was among the first litter of foxes to achieve sentience and learn magic. The first Kitsune, in other words. That's been a little harder to move past. I'm not sure it's possible for normal foxes to enlighten anymore. Let's see, am I forget? Oh, right. There's Kazuhiro in the office, dressed as Shiko, taking reports on a wireless phone headset and scribbling notes down on paper. If you haven't guessed, Kazuhiro drives the truck I ride in and normally would have picked me up. If you're expecting me to say I should have realized something was wrong when Kaz showed up early, I'll have you know that just because he behaves like a comedy sidekick doesn't necessarily make him a slacker. I could see through the Kaz as Shiko illusion like I could see through Shiko as Kaz. All of the Kitsune here can to help emphasize the hello my name is nature of the switch and prevent slip-ups. Mystical disguises, he doesn't do a terrible job at passing for Shiko. Someone who doesn't know her well would probably be pretty fooled up until the fighting started. Mortals would never know the difference. Oh, thank Inari. Kazuhiro gasps when he, see, when he sees Shiko and I come in. He immediately begins unbuttoning the blouse, apparently planning to trade clothes. Okay, looks like neither of them is an issue. They're just getting changed right here. Fine, whatever. It's only us and the Matamis in the room, anyhow. When he looks like himself, Kazuhiro is kind, of, is kind of lanky, but otherwise nondescript, the sort of average face that most people's memories just slide off of. As far as I know, it's not a Kitsune trick. He, he just has one of those faces and knows how to use it. Put him in a set of work coveralls without any logos or markings of the normal signs of wear. And you can go pretty much anywhere a maintenance guy might turn up. Watanabe-kun, what's the situation? Yeah, Shiko asks over the rustling of clothing. 
Nobody else has noticed anything suspicious. No other signs of compromise. Kazuhiro says business-like. I'm getting locations in on the usual suspects. Shiko tosses a sealed plastic bag and containing the troll's letter onto the desk as she rebuttons her blouse. Get Narada Kyoko in here. She should be working today, and she knows a few things about forgeries. When Shiko's back in her clothes, she undoes whatever she had hiding her hair. It's long and black and normally in a ponytail, but separately whatever illusion made her like Kaz had it concealed. But she just reaches back, and it looks like she unties an invisible bun and lets it loose, and with smooth rehearsed motions, ties it back into the immaculate ponytail she normally keeps it in. She has the sort of face with a small nose and narrow eyes. It's just cute enough that some people might wonder if she's meant to be eye candy. Hey, the office isn't my problem anymore. Kazuhiro grins and zips up his uniform coveralls. I'm just a driver. Shiko gives him a glare that makes me wince, despite not, not being aimed at me, but Kazuhiro holds his ground. After a few moments stand down, Kaz picks up the phone to get on the intercom. The grin remains as he's obviously doing Shiko a favor because he's closer to the phone and not intimidated into doing her bidding. In addition, her glare surely has nothing to do with the speed with which he slips out of the office afterwards. Okay, so what exactly is going on? I ask now that I've got a moment to get a word in edgewise. It sounds like the fear messing with us, and I don't particularly understand why. I've explained a feud to you, right? Chico asks. Yeah, a bunch of the tricksters constantly one-upping each other. Us, the coyotes, and the, the puka. And there are others that don't get involved. The primary battlefield in which the feud has been fought has been the pursuit of an ever-elusive emerald in the snow. Without that prize, it's only a matter of time before someone decides to reframe the feud on their own terms. Shiko gestures to the note with the baggie. What is an emerald in the snow? I've heard the expression, but context has been a little thin. Shiko visibly relaxes, either because going over this with me helps take her mind off the crisis, or because she's back in her tasteful office dress, or both. As she does so, she drops all the illusions, even those of the yokai see. Shiko's true form is particularly striking shades of black, white, and gray in patterns that always make me think of a traditional red fox captured in a black and white photograph. She displays four tails right now, but I know she's got more. Few of us show more than one unless we have to, and not always even that one. And in this case, it's her version of wearing a badge that marks her as the authority to defer to. I've just got a single one because I'm new, but despite the difference in age and power, Shiko's been mentoring me personally. Emerald in the snow is the common expression among the trickster clans for when one of us truly reaches, teaches a Rakath a lesson and reminds them of their humanity. She explains in the instructional tone I've become used to. The term comes from when the kitsune pulled it off, since we were the first. It's why we have so many of their tricks. When you're ready to carry it, I'll share the story. Rakath are human, right? Magic humans, but human, I say, slightly confused. What am I missing? Shiko sighs wearily as she looks out into the warehouse, waiting on Kyoko to turn up. She mutters, It can't be helped. Under her breath, and gestures for me to follow her through an unmarked door, one that only the Matamis and Kitsune in good standing can see. It leads to a simple private office with a slightly fancy desk, a couple of beat-up chairs, and that older model quartered phone every office still uses. If you didn't know any better, you'd think someone just quit and nobody else has moved in yet. The only personal effect is a large framed photograph. It depicts Shiko in human form as she appeared when I first met her. She's standing next to a Tory gate, wearing a kimono and holding a bamboo and paper umbrella. She's got a content and happy smile, that sort of candid Mona Lisa expression you can only get from someone who doesn't know their picture's being taken. Makoto, I'm about to do the dumbest thing a trickster can do to a student. But it's also so seemingly inevitable that I suspect one of them made it that way. Well, she says, deadly serious. I'm about to warn you against pulling a trick on a Raketh, knowing full well the ideas it will give you. She pauses and stares at me. 
I stare back and after a moment I realize she's given me an opportunity to drop the subject, back off, leave the warning where it sits. And I hesitate long enough that the subconscious, curious perk of my ear signals for her to continue. No single trickster clan has accomplished the feat more than once, despite so much effort and many close calls. My last serious attempt to seize it myself was back in 1904. San Francisco. She indicates the picture. This is me during a quiet moment sometime before I left Japan. Kale, the Raketh of the time before he became known as the Recluse, painted it, capturing this moment some years after the fact. That's a painting from over a century ago? I take a closer look at the portrait, and now that I'm able to look for it, I can see it. It is indeed a painting made with such incredible skill it's indistinguishable from a photo, possibly even sharper than a photo from that time should be, and in such good shape I'm still not convinced it's a century old. He captured this moment some years after the fact? How did he do that? As soon as I finish asking the question, I realize the answer. Magic. She says wistfully before meeting my gaze. A Raketh won't be swayed by illusions or magical trickery. They might see what you're showing them, but they won't necessarily believe it. She sighs and tries not to look at the painting again. I went after Kale without a specific agenda in mind. I knew if I had a goal other than simply to trick him, he'd pick up on it. So I kept my mind open as to the possibilities. In other words, you went after him before you knew what he had to take, I think to myself. I got close to him. We spent some wonderful time together amid ups and downs. Things got a little awkward when I explained that to translate into the modern parlance, I'm trans and not simply a cross-dresser. Oof. In 1904, I can see that being... I began before she cuts me off with a wave of her hand. It was awkward enough that he offered to paint me as an apology. And rather than let the time, effort, and frustration up to that point go to waste by breaking things off, I let him redeem himself and sat for the portrait. She affects a British accent. I presume his when she quotes... I was more than a little surprised at the result. He said it was my ideal vision of myself. She sounds very much like she wants to seem skeptical of that notion, but it's not as convincing as she might like. But, as you put it, I did the dumb thing and fell for him. Now she continues. My options were limited. I could make a quick grab at the claw of Shosher and run for it, confess everything and hope for the best. Or accept my failure, tactically withdraw, and hope not to find myself frozen solid in a surprise blizzard for ghosting him. The claw of... Shosher? His focus. A blade that once tasted of Susano and was left with a thirst so mighty it could only be sated by the soul of a cannibal god and the heart of our second son. Okay, now you're fucking with me. I'm about to go back out to the main office, but her eyes flicker with something that suggests my safest course of action is to pull over a chair, sit down, and let her finish. So I do exactly that, throwing in an apologetic nod. I decided to let the claw go, but... She pauses to gather her words. You have to understand, I'd taken into account that I was underestimating him, and he was still cleverer again by half than I'd believed. He'd worked out that I was a trekster, and the awkwardness around my gender was merely a brick in the fortress of his paranoia. He confronted me before I could have the conversation on my terms. My claims that I never meant to hurt him, despite being sincere, fell on deaf ears. So what did he do? I'm a little afraid to know the answer, but even more afraid that I'll never have the opportunity to, or nerve to ask again. Shiko looks at the portrait and then back at me. There's something in her eyes that I'm instinctively certain no non-Kitsune has ever seen from her. It's a mixture of regret, sadness, longing, and a few other things all collectively beyond mortal language's capacity to articulate. I know better than to question this look, even from someone who is to other tricksters what tricksters are to mortals. 
It's momentary glimpse behind Shiko's curtains of pretense and deception, and I'm actually a little shaken at the depths of emotion that can still eat away at this ancient being over a century later. He sent me back to Japan through his... his damned mirror. Shiko whispers with a slight hitch in her voice, the profanity forced for emphasis. But only after teaching me the true names of the wind and the snow and ensuring they will be on the tip of my tongue until my dying breath. I don't know if Shiko's directly responsible, but a sensation like a finger of ice runs up my spine as I take a moment to process that. So, dealing with Raketh is a major thing then, good to know. And for one to step down when they're so central to our whole deal... There's more to it than that. She sighs. Few are fully aware of this, and most of those who are aren't going to be worried about it just yet. But the existence of magic itself is reliant on having a Raketh. Wait, so... Not right away. It will take time, but yes. Gods, yokai, the world we know as it exists beyond human sight, will fracture and dissolve. I'm not sure what my face looks like in this moment, but Shiko looks apologetic as she simply nods. Why are you telling me this? I ask after a second. You will need to know these things eventually. You're new, which means you're more likely to be kept out of the loop by accident, and I'd rather head that off. I feel like there's more to it than that, but for the sake of what's left of my sanity, I let it be enough. But it works in your favor. She continues. Were there still a Raketh, telling you about the Emerald in the Snow runs the risk of making you obsessed with making a foolhardy attempt at one. That's ridiculous. I mean, not that it sounds easy, but it does seem really odd that each trickster clan has only ever achieved it one time. It can't be that... I trailed off as I find myself trying to plan a heist against a mark who doesn't currently exist, seeking a prize I can't even comprehend. Okay, you've made your point. She gives me her usual smile, curtains closed once more, and nods with a grim satisfaction. Just be thankful. But not too thankful, there is no Raketh, or else I'd need to have you watched for the next month for your own sake. I blink at that. Before I can ask if the obsession is really that bad, there's a knock at the door. Shiko quickly you know, writes a message in the air with her finger as an air sets calligraphy brush and moves to get the door. Tell nobody exactly where we got the leather, nor anything discussed in this room. Not even Watanabe. How can I help you, Lady Shiko? Her Japanese carries an American accent so slight that only a native speaker would notice the difference. And even then might be mistaken for someone suppressing a Kansai accent. What's your assessment of these? Shiko asks as she opens up the plastic baggie, producing the letter and the accompanying note required from the troll. Are these connected to what everyone's... Assume it's irrelevant. Just tell me your thoughts, untainted by presupposition. Okay. She turns both pieces of paper over, holds them up to the light, sniffs them. At one point she turns them so she's looking at them from the edge, like she can see the ink on top on top of the paper. Which, for all I know, she can. The letterhead suggests this came from a sheath's desk, and the paper quality backs it up. She says, indicating the letter. Age of the paper suggests someone ordered way too much stationery once upon a time and simply hasn't gone through it all, or perhaps a box of it got lost somewhere. Either way, someone who doesn't send a lot of personal messages. Fountain pen, high-quality ink, same ink on both letter and note, same pen for both. Different handwriting, though. Shiko nods, satisfied with confirmation of what we already know. Do you know how old? Ashiko asks. The letter? The paper's at least a couple decades old. Maybe longer if it was kept in proper storage. And the scent. Kyoko gives Shiko a raised eyebrow and sniffs the letter again. 
The odor suggests someone who keeps animals, maybe even has a kennel or a stable if they're a noble. Is there any way of knowing if it was actually written by Baron Rosewood? We'd need a handwriting sample to compare to. Same with the note, if you're wondering who wrote that. Do you know anything about who wrote the note? I asked before realizing I've done so. Tough to say. The strokes are clearly deliberate and careful, not randomly tossed off. My first thought is this is a servant who's expecting to have their work checked later. The paper is more recent, which supports my theory that the Baron Stationery has been sitting in storage for a while. The note has the exact same scent, correct? Shiko asks. Kyoko gives her a look and sniffs at the note to confirm. Yes, Lady Shiko, it does. Exactly? Same potency? Yes. That will be all for now. Shiko says she reaches to take it back, and Kyoko pulls it away. Lady Shiko, this is, there is one more thing. Shiko's eyes literally flicker with annoyance. What? Are you aware that this is a kill order? Wait, what? I ask. Kyoko points to one of the paragraphs. There are some particular word choices in the investigation request, a little outdated even by Sheed nobility standards. As certain as the grave could merely be flowery, but take the evidence to Tektu in is more damning. A Gallic realm of the dead. Shiko says for my benefit. Thank you for that insight, Narita-chan. Back to work, but stay in the warehouse. I may need your skills later. Kyoko gives me a confused look, but bows to Shiko and vanishes so quickly you'd think she walked to the office wall. The letter's a fake, Shiko says. Wait, you're sure? Then why? I have every reason to believe that Kyoko's assessment is accurate. I don't think she's wrong. I'm not sure how they pulled it off, but I do know the letter has to be false. Please, for pity's sake, explain why, I groan. The smell. The same smell on both the letter and the note. Yeah, a noble who keeps animals. Wrong. We're meant to believe that two different people wrote the letter and the note. Shiko tucks both back into the bag. A noble who likely interacts with the animals only for leisure wouldn't carry as much of the scent as a servant who probably actually has to handle them. Regardless, the smell in them is not just an animal smell. Kyoko said kennel or stable, suggesting a bit of dog and a bit of horse. A puka. She nods, satisfied that it came to the same conclusion. The same puka on both, at that. Then it clicks. You mentioned a puka back in the truck. I know they shapeshifted a dog in horse forms. I didn't realize you can tell when they're in human form. I filed that away. So Puka wrote both of these to what? Send a troll after us? No Puka wrote these. You're doing this deliberately, I snarled. The scent isn't merely a Puka, but the Puka. It's a very distinctive scent to one who, that's known him as long as I have. She looks at me, and despite the serious expression, I see a twinkle in her eye that indicates she may be literally feeding on my confusion. These smell like Reardon Robert O'Rourke. I frown at that. The Riordan? Progenitor and literal ancestor called Puka? Her Majesty Storyteller? The only living trickster to have... Oh, okay, now that I know what an Emerald of the Snow is, that adds some context to things. Most of what I know about the Riordan is, is because of his relationship with Spencer Crane, a coyote in one of Shiko's pet projects, for some reason. Someone wants us to think a Puka wrote this, but I guarantee you that Rourke of all people isn't conning trolls into attacking Kitsune. Shiko explains. Thank the gods that the troll appears to have been too stupid to understand the kill order. Regardless of work was behind this, he'd certainly do a better job of it than leaving his odor all over the pages. 
If he wished to challenge me or even just get my attention, he'd do so openly, and the trickery would come later. Something like this is beneath him. Besides, Puka can't lie. She continues. If it didn't smell like Rourke specifically, I'd think maybe someone tricked a Puka into writing this as foreplay. Okay, then allow me to play straight man and ask you who really did this. Who really wrote this? The obvious answer is, thankfully, the same as the only answer that makes sense when you stop and think about it. A coyote did this. You think Spence? Even without the murder attempt, this wouldn't be Spencer Crane's style. I raise an eyebrow and she continues. If Spencer were to put a troll up to that stunt earlier, he wouldn't forge a letter and he definitely wouldn't use work sent to sell it. He'd likely plan to get the troll to chase him and make him think he'd gone in there. Then he would somehow accidentally succeed in an unintentional but exceptional way. Besides... Shiko turns to one of the computers and brings up, secu- brings up a security feed outside. The camera aimed directly at a 1967 Corvette. I still have the vet. If this was Spencer's doing, he'd have it back by now. Mystery solved, then, I sarcastically say with a nod. Shiko sold the car from Spencer's father, and it's been passing back and forth between Shiko and Spencer ever since. Besides, I doubt his investment in the feud in any case. Shiko's tone suggests a deeper meaning that she's not going to explain. So where do I come in on this? What? Why did you pick me up at home and all that? Maintaining Watanabe-kun's cover? Checking on the safety of one of our chief assets? Oh, I assumed you were going to have me investigate all this as a training assignment or something. Shiko gives me a surprised look. If you're volunteering, then sure. She shuffles through the notes Kazuhiro took while she was out looking for something. Wait, was that all too? Did she actually not? You know what? Fine. Okay, I sigh. Where should I start? Conveniently, Intel puts the current Rosewood Estate in Grunstadt, near the bay. That means it's in a district of the city where people aren't likely to think twice at seeing a Japanese delivery truck. Sure, it's not typical for this specific spot, especially you know, with an Irish neighborhood on one side and Jamaicans on the other, but a 10 truck isn't that remarkable there unless it's circling the block a few times. And it's not like the three of us are planning to pull up out front and ask where they start, want to start bringing in sacks like we're supposed to be there. We already ruled that out for one thing. There are places where you can get a foot in the door by asking for directions or pretending to have the wrong address, but those places aren't brownstones owned by nobles, even minor ones. And yes, the three of us. At Shiko's suggestion, Kazuhiro and I take Kyoko with us. It's a little uncomfortable since our options are running in the back, crouched between the seats, or in someone's lap. Since I'm riding shotgun, my lap is the least worst choice. If we draw the wrong sort of attention, I'm pretty sure we'll get off lighter having someone on my lap than sitting on the floor anyways. Why isn't Shiko doing this? Kazuhiro asks, we try by the Rosewood's address. We could have let her out here, circled the block, and she'd have what we need by the time we got back. Lady Shiko's energy is better spent on more important tasks than finding the origin of a prop. Kyoko's tone is careful and diplomatic. Kazuhiro looks at me and raises an eyebrow. Right now, our leads are the latter and the likely culprits. I explain as I look at the house. Any one of us could pursue the former, but Shiko can interrogate four, maybe even five of Father Coyote's brood in the time it would take us to just find one. The Rosewoods live in a nice row house. Not Destry Bay or even Alora nice, but nice enough. According to Kyoko, the closest thing to an expert on fate politics available to help us, the Rosewoods are pretty low on the totem pole in terms of raw political power, which suits me fine if it means not dealing with an estate with a private security force. The word of the grapevine suggests we're better off talking our way in than anything else. Apparently everyone tightened security following the robbery and murder of one of their neighbors, Greenfield or something like that. Kyoko's, do- Kyoko's dossier tried a little too hard, and I only skimmed that bit. So what's the plan? Kazuhiro asks once we're past the house. 
we know what we're not doing, so we need to work out what we are doing. I look out the window at the house and think for a moment, letting my weird reincarnated instincts sift through what we know and where we are. Kyoko, uh, Kyoko what forgery could you do here? Uh, Kyoko checks the glove box and pulls out a portable calligraphy kit. With this and the techniques I learned from my grandfather, I could easily forge a letter. Nothing that would stand up to expert scrutiny, but it could get us in the door. Is that yours? I ask, staring at the kit. Standard equipment in 10 oaths vehicles. Kaz explains. Just in case we have to prepare something. That makes sense, actually. Okay, then, this is what we do. About 10 minutes later, Kyoko and I walk up to the brownstone. We look human at the moment so as not to advertise that foxes are in the neighborhood. A few blocks away, Kazuhiro gives a restaurant owner with whom we do business a whole spiel about promotional and decorative items we have available. This gives the truck a convenient excuse to sit for a bit without making an actual delivery. It's also the sort of thing Kaz should do more often anyways, and if nothing else comes of this trip, then a Tommy should be pleased to hear he took the time. A simple illusion covers our work uniforms with something a little more business casual. For me, that means a polo shirt with a tiny 10 oath distribution logo on it with pressed slacks. Kyoko wears a silk blouse and a skirt and carries a leather folder that zips closed, the sort with a legal pad and stuff inside. Or at least it would have a legal pad if it were the real thing and not an illusion over a folder we keep in the truck for gas receipts. We don't know if it'll hold up against any magical defenses if we go inside, but it's risk worth taking. A brownie housekeeper, a short fey woman with brown hair and definitely dressed more for work than fashion, responds to my knock. She was quick enough we must have caught her by the door. She looks confused when she sees us. I could see her trying to remember if there were J Japanese Jehovah's Witnesses. Can I help you? She asks after a moment. I snap my fingers and Kyoko reaches into the folder. She hands me an envelope that I then pass on to the servant in front of me with an eager smile. Pardon my interruption. The lord of the house has requested our presence. My grammar's perfect, but I do lay on a bit of an accent like it's not worth the trouble to suppress it. Much more diplomatic than near English I busted out on the troll. Still confused, she takes the envelope. It's plain, and it's obviously been opened, some scribblings in Japanese on the back. She furrows her brow and pulls out the paper inside and skims a letter written in Baron Rosewood's handwriting with brushwork close enough to a fountain pen to pass casual scrutiny. At a glance, it's a summons using archaic language like the letter Shiko and I took off the troll earlier. One moment, she says before firmly but politely closing the door in her faces. We expected this, so it's easy enough to remain respectfully still and attentive as we wait, all in case someone's watching us. We don't expect the crumpled letter thrown on my chest when the door opens again. I catch it before it falls to the ground. Is this some sort of joke? A she-woman hisses from the doorway. She's got hair like straw, pointed ears, and sort of sharp nose someone clearly spent generations breeding into the family line for the best disdainful sneers. The brownie servant stands behind her and slightly off to the side, phone in hand. I don't understand. My accent is still fake, though my puzzlement is real. I resist the urge to look over Kyoko. You come here, you... You fox. To what? Rub my family's loss in our faces all these years later? I think there is some sort of misunderstanding. At least I don't have to feign confusion, but figuring out what she's talking about while also maintaining that tone is actually becoming a challenge. Let me try. And Kyoko quickly says in Japanese before switching to slightly worse English than mine. Have we been misled, my lady? Have you been... She gets up before she stops and pinches the bridge of her nose. Baron Rosewood died 40 years ago, and his title passed out of the house. I don't know where you got this, if you just took your sweet time answering as some insult, or... The she trails off and just shakes her head. Just go. 
she says with a hint of pain in her voice. As upset as she is, she's too baffled to keep up the white-hot rage for a good slam and half-closes it before shoving it the rest of the way shut. Well, we learned something, I mutter with some sarcasm to cover up that I feel a little crappy now. I head back down the street in the direction of the truck, staring at the paper ball in my hand. The troll must have not known the woods Rosewoods personally, only saw the title and acted on it. Kyoko says as she follows. So what now? Back to the warehouse? I hold up the crumpled letter. You know what this is? The letter I wrote? You know what it isn't? Kyoko shakes her head. The envelope. Come on, let's check in with Kaz. We'll need him for plan B. And I believe this is actually where we plan to uh, leave off for part one. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on and for reading. No, uh, thank you. I just, you know, I wasn't sure. How, I honestly wasn't sure how long, uh, long it would take to get through it. So this is actually a little quicker than I expected. Well, again, we want to thank you all for coming in uh, into the podcast and listening to this live reading of Sam Hain's Secrets. The Kick Gloves Are Off by Chris Schaefer, aka Mythic Fox. We also want to thank our voice actors, Chris Schaefer, Dave the Dragon, Sky Sisk, Kez McDonald, and we want to thank you so much for coming in. We'll be resuming next week with Von DeMott hopefully returning to take over hosting duties. Remember to pick up your copy of Sam Hain's Secrets at BlackWarrenBooks.com or Amazon. Once again, thank you all for listening, and good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Blackmore and Reads is a production of Alora Public Radio. Episodes are edited by me, Chris, and posted to Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Learn more at blackwarnbooks.com. Blackwarn Books. Be the hero, not a token.